All right, let me invite you to turn with me once again to 1 Samuel chapter 13. Okay, so we left it off. Where's Samuel? I think I'm going to do this myself, bring the burnt offerings over, and then uh, Samuel comes up immediately over the hill, and Saul goes out for a meet and greet in hopes of perhaps appeasing Samuel, who has just showed up. As you find it most helpful for you, whether in your own Bibles or whether in your bulletins or whether in the blue Bibles that are in front of you, I would ask you to follow along with me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed at Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned towards Beth Haran. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now, now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Lord, we pray that you would help us, your people, looking at this 3,000 years or so after the events which took place here. But the living word of God that always speaks to us, we pray that through the word you would speak to us now. And we pray in your name. Amen. A haunting question, a terrifying question resides at the very center of this chapter, and I tried to highlight it 
in the way that I read the text for us this morning. It is a question that should send a shiver down your spine, a chill to your heart. It should put a pit in your stomach the moment that you think about it, the moment that you hear this question. What have you done? Imagine for a moment that you've done something wrong. That shouldn't be too hard, right? Just imagine for a moment that you have done something wrong. And right after you did whatever it is that is in your mind right at the moment, your boss, your parents, maybe your spouse, maybe your pastor, maybe an elder, Imagine a prophet of the Lord comes up to you and says, what have you done? To Adam, God said, did you eat of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat? To Eve, God said, what have you done? To Cain, God said, what? have you done? To Achan, Joshua said, what have you done? Saul, what have you done? Can you personalize it? Can you put your name there? Eric, what have you done? Keep the question in mind. In this sermon, we'll see how this question and this text fits into the scope of biblical history and into our lives in particular. But in order to do that, and to do that well, we need to understand how it fits within this part of God's words, this chapter of God's word. What happened with Saul? And as we work through it, we'll see a king and a kingdom threatened, a king and a kingdom lost, and then a king and a kingdom promised here. Threats, or perhaps we might think of it this way, threats or temptations are always just around the corner for this newly established king and this new kingdom under an earthly king. In chapter 11, we saw it was the Ammonites, and now once again, We're back to the Philistines here in this chapter. Now, to somewhat prepare for those kind of threats, it appears in verse 2 that Saul is establishing something of a standing army for Israel. He's got 2,000 that are under his command and 1,000 that are under Jonathan's command. It is an army... But it is, as we look at the end of this chapter, an ill-equipped army, two swords, in this case amongst, we'll call it 3,002 men. Okay? 3,002 men have two swords. The rest have some combination of farming equipment. Uh, slings aren't mentioned, but slings, if you follow the rest of the story here, clubs, whatever they've got. It is an army, but not well equipped. 
And so what we can say, at least here at the outset, is if this army goes into battle, surely the credit for any victory that they might receive would be from the Lord. It would be given to the Lord. The Lord would be the one who can conquer others, conquer armies with a mass of chariots, weapons, as the Philistines had. Surely that would go to the Lord. Now, there is an initial victory that is described for us here in this chapter, and of course the victory belongs to Jonathan. When Jonathan is introduced to us, Jonathan is talked about here, it's the first time that we have heard his name, and initially in the story, we're not told that it's Saul's son, but a little ways later into this chapter, it's revealed that in fact Jonathan is the son of Saul, and he gets this initial victory. A little obscure, was Saul right in claiming the credit for the victory, saying, this is mine, I'm the king, any victories that are achieved underneath of me can be called my victories, or is he a little bit jealous for looking at this as part of what he has done instead of what Jonathan has done? Difficult to say for us, but the result of Jonathan's victory is it's a good victory, it's a right thing to do, but what it serves to do also is to uh, poke the bear to poke the bear that is the Philistines. And so in response, what happens is the Philistines call out the troops, they call out the chariots, thousands of them, and the odds suddenly for the people of Israel look terrible. It's an awful looking situation and the people themselves are terrified. And of course, though it it, it goes from, though the the events take place in time, it goes from bad to worse. The more you read of this chapter, the more awful the situation appears to be. We go from 3,000 as part of this fighting force to the point where the next time we get a count, later in the chapter, we're down to 600 who are part of this force, and they're surrounded by the Philistines. The battlegrounds have shifted, and the Philistines, by the end of it, have three companies coming out against them, seeking to encircle the Israelites. And the question is, what's Saul, the king, going to do? What are you going to do when your back is up against the wall, when you are threatened And when you are tempted, how are you going to respond in that particular moment, especially when there's no Samuel? Samuel has left. What will you do? The threat is real, and in light of this threat, in view of this threat, it leads then not only to a threat, but a king and a kingdom lost. The situation is perilous. Doubts arise in Saul. Saul wonders to himself, where's the promised coming? Now, I said that like that. I asked that question like that so that you could hear the echoes of it from the letter of Peter. Where's the promised coming? People will say, where's the promised coming? In this case, where's the promised coming? of Samuel. That's what he wonders. And the temptations arise at exactly the same time 
And the temptation that is plain to us here is the temptation common to humanity. The temptation is to take matters into your own hands, to do what you can to repair the situation, to get out of the difficulty, to escape the threat. Now, we've got to remember two things that we have seen developed over the, fa- the past couple of chapters here, two principles. One principle is this, kings should listen to and obey prophets who speak the word of God. Okay, that's principle number one. That's what kings should do. That was what was established clearly in the very beginning of all of this, but also established clearly in the resolution that we saw in chapter 12. Kings should listen to prophets. They should heed the word of God spoken to them by the mouthpiece of God, God's prophet. Secondly, kings should do kingly things. Kings should govern. Kings should fight in battle. And priests and prophets should do priests and prophet kind of things, which is to say they should pray, they should make intercession on behalf of the people, they should offer sacrifices, and they, as prophets, should speak the word of God to the king and to the people. Kings do what kings do. Prophets, priests do what prophet priests do. Civil and sacred authority in these realms have been defined. But Saul, in this moment, is feeling seriously insecure. He has been instructed by Samuel to wait. Wait until I come to you. But waiting is so very hard. It's hard for all of us to wait well. And it would be particularly hard for all of us to wait well if you saw a swelling rank of Philistines around you with chariots around you and you don't have many weapons and the people are starting to flee from you and get away from you in the face of this. And under the gun, under that pressure, I shouldn't say under the gun, under the chariots, under the sword, Saul acts. And he acts Contrary to the word of God, contrary to the role that is given to him, he succumbs to the temptation. He capitulates to the demands of the moment. He does it. As as he says, I forced myself to do it. I didn't want to do it, but I forced myself to do it. And at that very moment, Samuel arrives up over the hill and says to him, what have you done? And Saul immediately launches into his defense, his justification, which, as has been pointed out by many people, as defenses go and as justifications go, as reasons for what you did are set forth. This is not bad. Not a bad set of things that he says. Listen, Samuel, the people and the troops were scattering from me. Everybody was afraid. And Samuel, you didn't come. I waited. I was here. But you didn't come. And the Philistines, well, they did come. They mustered the troops. 
They were taking ground. They were building up the forces around me. And I realized, Samuel, that I hadn't sought the Lord's favor. I realized that. I I needed to seek God's favor. And so this is what I did. Now, considering the moment, considering this moment broadly in the context of all of Scripture, I want you to hear what that sounds like. What it sounds like is this. I saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasing to the eyes, and it was able to make one wise. And, you know, God slash Samuel, it's kind of your fault because this woman that you gave to me, well, she took of the tree. She gave me the fruit, and I ate. We can justify all sorts of things to ourselves. Have you ever noticed that? You are great at making an excuse, a reason, a justification for something that you have done. You can internalize it. You can say, well, listen, I didn't pray because I didn't get up early because I needed my rest. I had exams coming. I didn't go to church because, well, there were things to do and there were opportunities that existed out there. I didn't come to evening church because, well, I did this and I did that and I, I, there was too much on my schedule and I didn't want to do those things. I cut the corner here at work because, eh, you know, everybody does that and it was hard to do what was, was the right thing, what was the true thing. We are masters at doing this, of internally excusing ourselves for the things that we do. It is so easy to do it. It is so comforting. It seems so right to us, right up until the moment where we have to say it out loud to somebody, where we have to say it out loud to somebody who knows better. After all, you could say, what is offering a sacrifice? In the grand scheme of really bad things to do, Offering a sacrifice as an Israelite king before a battle doesn't seem to be really high on the list. Of course, neither does eating of a tree. In the great vein of moral things that one might do that are wrong in this world, Samuel listens, and he doesn't say, hmm, well, Saul, you know what? Now that you've explained it, come to think of it, the reasoning that you gave me sounds pretty good. I, you know what? Okay, you're right. You, you did the right thing given these circumstances any more than God listening to Adam and Eve said, well, you got a point there. You're right. You know, that's, you, that's a different way of seeing it. I hadn't seen it that way, but you see it that way. Verse 13, you have acted foolishly. You've acted foolishly. You have not kept the command. You have not kept the word of God. And the verdict of that statement, that verdict is beyond contestation. And the sentence that follows it is devastating. There's no statement here that says, well, you know what? You did what was wrong, but I forgive you. God forgives you. Now let's go out and fight the Philistines. 
That's not said here. Listen carefully to the words at the end of verse 13 and then into 14. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will not continue. Saul, you lost the kingdom. It would have remained with you and your family. Parentheses. Jonathan seems like the first son that we'd like to hand things off to in the book thus far. He didn't want to hand things off to Eli's sons. He didn't want to hand things off to Samuel's sons. Jonathan seems like a guy you might want to hand off the kingdom to, but it will not take place. You'll retain the title, Samuel, but the kingdom, Saul, but the kingdom is taken away. And, and what's taken away is a forever kingdom an eternal kingdom and kingship. That was what was held out to Saul as a potentiality. But now, that which could have been eternal is forfeited. It will not continue. Now, this should sound a little bit odd to us. It should sound a bit extreme to us to think A, of the consequences, that might sound or seem to be extreme to us, but B, of this idea that, pardon me, an eternal kingship was held out to the line of Saul? How does that work? What what would that even mean to have an eternal kingship? The only way to understand this is to understand this language in light of King Adam to take it back to where I've taken back many of these chapters and to see humanity's first king who was a king over all of the human race who would proceed from him, a king by the covenant of works. We read about that a couple of weeks ago in the Westminster Confession of Faith. The kingship that Adam had as our first king was a conditional kingship. What it required in order to be established was perfect obedience, and nothing less than perfect obedience on his part. Had Adam obeyed perfectly, then a blessed state would have been procured and secured. But he acted foolishly and his kingdom did not continue, and the king, King Adam, became a subject of the prince of the air. Now, thousands and thousands of years have passed since that moment in time, that fateful day, and now a king by covenant. Chapter 12 established the covenant. It renewed the covenant. Chapter 12 establishes the covenant, and now you have a king by covenant. All of the preliminaries have been been taken care of, and there is a new king installed on earth, the king of Israel, the king of God's people. Blessedness and security and eternality are on the line in that king. That king, like Adam, is a representative. Not everybody's a representative, but when you've got a king and a king, he's a representative. He could have secured an eternal kingship by 
obeying the voice of the Lord. God is replaying a scene. That's what's happening here. This is a scene recap for us. It's, it's a wondering, if you will, is there an alternate ending to this movie? You know, sometimes the director's cut at the end of the DVD has alternate endings, things that they considered to be the end, and that's kind of what we're watching here take place. God's replaying a scene, and we wonder as we watch it, will the result be any different? Over the course of a thousand years, over the course of God's revelation, will something turn out differently this time when the king is threatened, when the king is faced with temptation, will it be better? And the answer is a resounding no. Paradise was lost originally, and the kingdom is lost here as well. Paradise lost, the kingdom lost. For Saul and for his family. And just to be clear, one of the subpoints here is if you'd have been there, if you think you would have done better, you'd have made the same choices as he would have as well. The threat, at least visibly speaking, were the Philistines, right? They were, they were the ones who were on the hills. Those were the ones who had the chariots. But the kingdom was not lost to them. Those external enemies can't cost the kingdom. The kingdom was lost by Saul. The kingdom was lost by the decisions that he made. What have you done? So a king and a kingdom is threatened, a king and a kingdom is lost, and a king and a kingdom is promised in Genesis chapter 3. The promise was an offspring will come and crush the head of Satan. One will come and crush his head. In 1 Samuel 13, the promise is a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart will come what a phrase. What does it mean? I mean, that phrase is one that we love to throw around and pray for it and think about it. What does it mean? Well, in the context, a man after God's own heart is a man set in contrast to Saul. And so a man after God's own heart is very simply someone who will keep the commandment of the Lord. Saul didn't. I'm going to raise up a king who will keep the commandment of the Lord. And if we turn back, if, and we're not going to do this right now, but if we looked again at chapter 12, it is someone who will keep the covenant, a king in particular, who will keep the covenant, who will fear the Lord, who will serve him faithfully, and in the words of chapter 12, will do it with all his heart. Will do it with all his heart. Or to put it in old covenant summary form, what is a man after God's own heart? The man after God's own heart is a king who will love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and love his neighbor as well. Luke, uh, when he's talking about this in the book of Acts on the front of your bulletin, parallels the phrase, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. That's what a man after God's own heart is. A man who does the will of God. In Genesis, that is to say, humans 
the way humans are supposed to be. After God's own heart, after our likeness, in our image. Those phrases we think of as different, we think of constitution uh, as part of being made in the likeness of God, how we're made, and indeed it's true. But in reality, in reality, they're saying the exact same things. A man after God's own heart is a man who is after God's own likeness. It was the responsibility of the human kings of Adam and Saul to be those kind of kings and thus to secure it for themselves and for their people as well. When queried, what have you done? They should have been able to say, I have done your will. I have done all of the things that you have commanded me. I have loved you. I have loved your people. But they didn't and they couldn't. And so, another is promised, and we'll look for another. Now, forgive me, I'll just abbreviate here for a moment. The question initially then becomes, is David the other? Is he the one we're looking for? Is he the man after God's own heart? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. Is Solomon the one, David's son? Is, is he the one? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. You see, you've got the first, the best, and the wisest. Are any of them the one, the man after God's own heart, the one who will do the will of the Father and do it perfectly? Because that is the need. That is the necessity. Hope is held out. Obey and live. The king can secure an eternal kingdom, but when you look at these kings, it looks hopeless or not. Hopeless or not. Romans 8. For God has done. Okay, look at the parable. What have you done? For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. Saul couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. Solomon couldn't do it. You can't do it. Weakened by the flesh, it could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What is required? Righteousness. The righteous requirement of the law has to be filled by someone. Someone has to do it. A king, in particular, has to do it. Jesus is the king who did all his father's will. That is why it is said so often in the Gospels, I delight to do your will. Jesus did all the will of his father. He is the king who perfectly loved the father. And when he was threatened, when enemies surrounded him, when death encompassed him, when the strong bulls of Bashan surrounded him, when the easy course would have been to pass it off, to avoid the cup, to blame it on somebody else, to say, listen, this isn't my fault. This isn't my fault. 
course, he's the only one who would have been right in so doing that. To call down the legions of troops when his own had abandoned him, not 3,000 to 600, but just himself there, alone, bearing it. When he could have said, sacrifice something else. When he could have said, my hands haven't done anything wrong. And instead, he gives up his hands. And he allows them to be nailed to the cross. He gives up himself in obedience to the will of his father. Pilate is taken to be here the voice of Satan himself, seeking to accuse, seeking to find out what this man had done. What have you done wrong? And he is forced to admit before all the world, this man's done no wrong. I've got a man here who's done no wrong. I can't find anything in him. And then he's pierced. And when the grave and death and sin and Satan try to hold him back down, try to seek some accusation that will stick. Yes, but you did something. They can find nothing in answer to the question negatively, what have you done? And up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. A kingdom secured, a promise kept, loss turned into gain. My friends, we will all stand before the great tribunal in heaven and he, we will hear the Almighty question us. You will hear the Almighty question you, saying this, what have you done? What have you done? What will you say in that day, at that moment? Will you say, well, Lord... To err is human, to forgive is, well, divine. Obedience is awfully hard. Who's perfect, after all? My parents were not good parents. Or will you develop your list, in fact, of what you have done? Maybe that will be your approach. Maybe you'll say things like, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Didn't I do good? I, I, I came to church with my parents. I, will that help? Does that do anything for me? Does that get me any credit here if you say those things? Hear the words. You have done foolishly. Foolishly. You will hear the words, get away from me. I never knew you. And you will lose everything. God gives you another response to offer. And though it might not seem like it, it flows exactly out of this text. And that is, I acknowledge and I own my sin and my rebellious heart, and I ask you not to look at what my hands have done. 
but look upon the Son at your right hand. My King, look at what He has done. He has done it. Those were the last words of Psalm 22, the last words of our call to worship this morning. He has done it. Jesus in John 17 says, Father, I have accomplished all of the work which you gave me to do. John records, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. It's done. I have done it. Lord, he accomplished the work that you gave him to do. Have mercy on me in the name of your son, the king. And if you speak such, from the integrity of your heart, he will say to you, enter into the kingdom that has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We might ask a question. Well, what am I supposed to do in light of what he's done? But that's something we'll get to next week. People said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God. And Jesus responded to them saying, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Lord, we pray that you would help us to believe. We acknowledge our own, our own sin, our kinship in sin, to Adam, Saul, David, Solomon, and all the others. And we acknowledge or cry out for kinship to Christ, our new king, the one who kept all the words of the covenant and did so faithfully. We pray that he would be our king. And we pray this in his name. Amen.